This is an ABC podcast. This week, it's our final week of conversations for 2020. So we're bringing you some of our highlights for the year. And today, it's my conversation with Peter O'Brien, a long-retired school teacher who began his life in teaching in a country schoolhouse 60 years ago in an Australia that seems almost unrecognisable to us now. In the year 1960, Peter O'Brien was barely out of teacher's college when he was posted to a tiny one-teacher school in country New South Wales. The town of Weabonga wasn't even a town. It was too small even to be called a village. The countryside was incredibly beautiful, but Weabonga was threadbare and hard scrabble. The post-war economic boom had passed it by, and people were still living as they had in the Great Depression. No electricity, no running water, no sewerage. Peter found the living hard in Weabonga, but the job, the job was incredibly sweet. He was in charge of 18 kids between the ages of 5 and 15, teaching all of them in the same classroom. He encouraged the kids' creativity and to apply the lessons that he taught them to their everyday lives. But to take up this two-year appointment in the country, Peter had had to leave behind the woman he wanted to marry. Peter's memoir of his two-year stint in Weabonga is called Bush School. Hello, Peter. Hello, Richard. This book is the story of a bush school, but in and around it is a love story. It's the story of how you met and fell in love with Patricia, who's still your wife. How did you meet Patricia? We met at the Surreyville Dance Hall on City Road, opposite the university. It was a wonderful dance hall. It had a sprung floor. It had a 15-piece big band and two singers, a male singer and a female singer. It was just a terrific place to dance and to meet people. And that's where I met Patricia. And did she make a striking first impression on you? Very. Very. How so? Uh, She was quite beautiful, very outgoing, very easy to talk to. The routine was that you actually, men asked the women for a dance. A woman never asked a man for a dance. So you would ask various girls for a dance and during the evening you would meet one that you very much liked and you would arrange to have the last dance. If the girl accepted the last dance, then it meant you would take her home. Now, just imagine none of us had vehicles, not one of us had a car. We all had to go home on public transport or, if we could afford it, a taxi. So a girl having a young man to take her home was really quite important. It wasn't just romance, it was for safety apart from any fatigue. So one night I had an early dance with Patricia and thought, this is quite an interesting girl. I'll ask her for the last dance and she accepted so that was it. When you get excited and you meet the person you fall in love with, it's actually very, it's genuinely frightening. I'm not kidding either. It's really very frightening when you realise what's at stake. Did you start to feel that excitement and, and fear? I loved falling in love, Richard. <laughs> falling in love was a terrific thing to do. Um, I'm not too sure that I fell in love with Patricia the first night. I was very impressed 
the first time. And we then made arrangements, of course, to have the occasional outing together in the months ahead of that. And gradually I came to realise that this was a very special person indeed and someone that I should be in love with. Were there any other young men on the horizon, any other coves you had to push out of the way, Peter? There were many of them, (laughs) many. Patricia moved out of the home where she was living with her grandparents into a unit at Bondi, a share flat with two other girls. I went there one night to find a young man sitting on the sofa. He was on the sofa where I sat. He was quite clearly a competitor. I was not having any... You produced your sword and you killed him. (laughs) If I had had a sword handy, I would have, Richard, but what I had to do was outsit him, which I did. He finally got up and left about a quarter to two. (laughs) I was still there. (laughs) So, just persistent. And you're still there on the couch next to Patricia after all these years, which is is rather lovely. Now, you'd been a teacher already at that point. What kind of teaching experience had you had up, up until the moment when you accepted the appointment? Uh, I had started Teachers College very young and had graduated very young, so I started teaching when I was a teenager, and I had two years at Kegworth. Um, I had been very worried that my first appointment might be to a one-teacher school, which was quite a usual thing in those days. I believed that I was not ready for it. I was too ill-prepared and too lacking in confidence to be on my own in a one-teacher school. But when I got appointed to Kegworth and found that it was actually a city school, I was overjoyed. But I learned very quickly that that was uh, a little misplaced, that joy. Kegworth was not the greatest experience. It was very poorly managed. I needed to have some mentoring and coaching and I got none of that. What I did get, though, was to find that I could work with children and the children actually enjoyed being with me. The kids at Kegworth were terrific. They were funny and they were really happy to do anything that I asked them to do. So it was a good experience in that sense. But as an introduction to teaching where you actually needed to be given some help, it wasn't any of that. So it was at this time you accepted the job in a one-school town in rural New South Wales. Can you just explain the system that was in place at the time which required young teachers to teach in those places for two years? In order to get some financial assistance at Teachers College, one had to sign a bond. And in signing that bond, one received something like 28 shillings a week, which... Uh, was not enough to pay your your board or anything, but at least it was some money. But in return for having 28 shillings a week for the time that you were at teacher's college, you had to do two years obligatory service in a country school. So I fully expected that I would have to go to the country. And at the end of the second year at Kegworth, when I received an appointment to the country, I was not surprised. And by then I was ready to go, Richard. I then knew that I could actually teach, that I enjoyed being with the children, that I could manage and I could plan and I could carry out those plans. So going to a small school in the country no longer had the 
fears that it had had previously. Was I looking forward to it? Not at all. How did they pitch the town of Weabonga to you as a, a sinecure for you to teach in? Well, as uh, my first appointment to the country was to a place called Guy Fawkes. But when I got to Guy Fawkes to open the school, there were only six children there. And so I was not able to open it. I had to contact the inspector in Armadale, who immediately told me to come back into Armadale and he would find an alternative school for me. He then offered me three placements. One of them was at a place called Ward's Mistake. (laughs) Another was at a place that I can't remember at all. Sorry, there was a town called Ward's Mistake? still is called Ward's Mistake. Is that on the edge of Lake Disappointment or somewhere like that, is it? Ward was Captain Moonlight or Captain Starlight. Oh, right, the Bush Ranger. Yeah, Bush Ranger. I guess his mistake was that he was caught there or something. Right. I'm sure it's a lovely place, but nonetheless, it just doesn't... doesn't, It sounds a bit ominous. Well, it didn't have a cachet that I wanted to... (laughs) sign up to. Anyhow, the inspector then introduced me to this notion of Weabonga, which he said was his most remote school and his neediest school. So he did not sell it to me. What he sold to me was that he was in desperate need and he would really admire my fortitude if I agreed to go to Weabonga. Where is Weabonga? Weabonga is between Walker and Tamworth. It's just under the top of the Great Dividing Range and it is in the middle of nowhere. No roads go anywhere through Weabonga except to Weabonga. It's very isolated and very remote. Now, you say it's at the top of the Great Dividing Range. It's north of Sydney, but does that mean it gets snow there sometimes? Yes. uh, Quite a number of times during winter there was snow, maybe 10 or 12 times in the winter season. And once you'd accepted the appointment, packed your bag and made your way towards Weabonga by what, train, I suppose? Or... I had to catch the train from Armadale down to Tamworth. That took a day. I stayed in Tamworth overnight and on the next morning I found the mail car driver at the Tamworth post office and arranged a lift out to Weabonga in the mail car. That took a day. So two days to get from Armadale to Weabonga. It's only about 60 miles across country. I've been calling it a town. Was it a town? No, not even a village. It actually had five houses and a school. There had been a post office and there was still a post office here, but it was just a one-room post office on the uh, end of a house veranda. There was an ex-police station and there was a community hall. That was it. No pub? No pub. There had been a pub, but that had closed closed down during the 50s, so it was well and truly closed by the time I got there in the 60s. What did it look like? What were the houses and buildings like? What state were they in, Peter? Uh, The majority of the houses were timbers, so weatherboard. It was all a bit tumbled down. The house that I actually stayed in had never had a coat of paint in its entire time. So when I arrived, it was uh, quite a nice silvery grey, if you can imagine, boards just allowed to weather, but totally neglected. So the roof was pitted with rust marks. Uh, Several of the weatherboards were falling off. It was quite a decrepit building. This is is 1960, and yet the picture you paint of the town, of the hamlet of Weabonga, it sounds like a place that still 
hasn't escaped the Great Depression. It still hasn't felt the post-war economic boom at, at all. Very little of it. Um, the people in the village were day labourers, that is, the men were. The men earned a living by working on the properties around about. Who were the family you were billeted with in Weabonga? When I arrived with Bon Knox, the mail car driver, he told me that I was staying with the O'Callaghan family, who actually lived in the really decrepit weatherboard house. So when I saw where I was about to stay, I was quite taken aback. I wasn't really happy about this. And I was met at the door by Jill, a very tall, very thin woman of a maybe middle 30s, uh, quite washed out in a very washed-out frock, clean and ironed, but all the colour had left. Uh, Jill invited me into the house, and I followed her in and immediately lost myself. There was no light in the room that she led me into. There were no windows in that room. No windows? No windows. It was an internal room, so you walked in from the front door, but there were no windows in that room. Other rooms opened off it. But walking in from the late afternoon light into that room, I just could not see. My eyes just couldn't accommodate to the darkness, so I had to stop put my suitcase down on the floor and say, Jill, <laughs> Jill, can you rescue me? I don't know where I am. <laughs> and, and when she took you into the room that was set aside for you, what was that room like? It wasn't a room. Leading into the house was a front veranda and on the front veranda there were a couple of posts. Against those posts, Jill and Laurie, her husband, my landlord, had tacked up some tar paper. That was it. That was my room, my bedroom. So, so you were sleeping on a veranda that was enclosed with, with tar, tar paper, paper in a place that snows in the winter? Tar paper is fairly water resistant. Um, well, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. In that room, so-called, was a bed. That was it, full stop. What, no wardrobe or of Nothing. Kind? A bed for two years. This is where I was going to stay. Just a bed and a hook. A bed on a veranda behind a piece of tar paper. I think you expect, a, you know, a bit rough and ready when you go and live in the country. You weren't expecting it to be that rough and ready. I wasn't expecting it to be that rough at all. I thought that a country centre like that, uh, with a small school, would be very welcoming of its teacher and would try to make that teacher comfortable and well looked after in order that the teacher felt comfortable there, settled down and could concentrate on their teaching. Jill and Laurie, my landlady and landlord, really wanted me to be comfortable, but that was the level of what they could offer. They were very poverty-stricken. The other thing that I found after a month or so of being in the village was that Jill and Laurie were the only people who would take me in. The other four families in the village simply didn't have space. Maybe they had a veranda, but they simply didn't have space. But Laurie and Jill wanted their three boys so much to have an education, they were willing to do whatever they could in order to make that possible. What they could was very, very modest indeed, but they did what they could. No electricity? No electricity, no running water. So how would you bathe in, in those circumstances? I took 
two large kettles out to the tank behind the house and fill the large kettles. Then I took them into the kitchen where there was a range, where there was an old timber wood range, and I put the kettles on, on top of the stove and I allowed them to heat up, and then I was able to put those two kettles full of hot water into the tin bath. There was a bathroom with a bath, <laughs> and then I would fill the bath with it some of the cold water. And how many how many of those were you allowed each week? Two a week at the beginning. Jill asked me not to have any more than two, but she did make it very clear that quite often she might ask me to have no more than one, and sometimes none at all. Nonetheless, they were doing the very best they could for you. They were doing the very best they could. Within a few days, I realised they were living exactly the way I was, exactly the way they were not treating me in any way different than they were treating themselves and their three lovely children. You weren't Harry Potter living under the stairs or anything like that. <laughs> uh, what were they feeding you? What, what could she give you for dinner? The only protein that they had were the rabbits that Laurie caught. So most of my meals in the evening were baked rabbit and whatever they grew in their garden Mostly squash, so baked rabbit and squash for my evening meal. For my morning, I had two boiled eggs. <laughs> and for my lunch, I had a rabbit on stale bread. <laughs> um, just a bit of a wild guess. Do you get a bit tired of rabbit after? <laughs> and that's all you're getting for dinner I got, lunch? I got just a touch jumpy on the <laughs> rabbit. <laughs> just a bit. I stopped. I never knew it had that effect. <laughs> I stopped eating after about uh, two and a half weeks. And what did you change to? I changed to a diet of Scotch finger biscuits and milk. What, for, for meals? I had Bon Knox, the mail car driver, buy me a large box of Scotch finger biscuits. And one of the families who lived on a property brought their children in every day, brought me some fresh milk every day. You would have become very ill if you'd just eaten that after a long while. I got very ill, yes. In fact, I became quite distressed physically and that lasted for many years, I have to say, the outcome of that. How about the school? What was your first day at the school like? I wasn't sure of who would turn up, how many children there would be or what grades they'd be in, but I sort of got ready for the first day. And then from about half past eight onwards, the family started to turn up with their children. It turned out there were eight families and 18 children. The children were in grades one through to a high school kid that I was not obliged to teach because he got his lessons through correspondence. So I had six grades, 18 children and a mixture of girls and boys, 13 boys and five girls. Who was more shy, you or the kids? Um, I was ready for it. The children were very shy. After the parents had left, I then tried to find the children. <laughs> I knew they were there somewhere. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> they were there somewhere. The uh, school had a, uh, a play area <laughs> of two acres, so they had a lot of space, and they had all disappeared. 
So I went out and I thought, I'm not going to call these children in by shouting. I'm going to find them and I'm going to very gently invite them to come in. It took me a while, I have to tell you, it took me a while to find them. They were sort of blending into the greenery, if they could. <laughs> so your approach to them was a bit, you know, slowly, slowly catchy monkey and all that. But what was, what was informing that? Why did you want to approach them in a gentle manner? Uh, I need to describe to you what schools were like then. They were very formal, very organised. So there were rows of desks all screwed down to the floor so they could never be moved. The children all lined up outside the school building in the morning at recess and at lunchtime and they marched in, in rows. They sat in their chairs and they did exactly what they were told. There was a, a very strict discipline the curriculum dictated everything. There were set times that one had to devote to each of the subject areas. It was very regimented, Richard. It did not suit me. And I had found that if I allowed the children freedom, if I encouraged their creativity, if I encouraged them to suggest to me what it is that they would like to learn what it is that they would like to follow up, to research, to read about, they were very able to tell me what it was that they would love to be engaged in. I had developed in my own mind that I wanted to do things quite differently and I was ready at Weabonga to give that a try. Maybe that was a good place to do it in. There was no one looking Absolutely. over your shoulder. I mean, you were principal and uh, teacher and groundskeeper and uh, cricket umpire and everything else, weren't you? I was. Every afternoon I swept the school. I wanted to work in a cooperative, friendly, supportive, facilitative way with the children. So I was determined from the first morning that that was the style that I was going to instill and we were able to do that together. Did that take a fair bit of work? I mean, were the kids wild and rowdy or were they ready to go from the get-go? With they were ready to go from the get-go. The first morning after we had finally got together and the 18 of them were in the classroom, I asked them to tell me what it was that they'd done over the holidays, what they'd enjoyed doing. But then we went on to what it was that they expected to do with me in this schoolroom. Why were they here? Tell me why you're here. And they told me they were here because they wanted to be together, that they loved being at school Many of them came from properties where they were on their own or just with their brothers and sisters. To be together, the 18 of them at school, they loved it. They wanted to be at school because it brought them into contact with their friends. They also told me that they were at school to learn. And when we delved into that a bit, they said that's what mum and dad had told them. They were there to learn. They were there to work. And as the children were talking to me, I was learning a lot about the children themselves, but also learning a lot about their families, what the families had provided for them, what the families wanted for them, what the families wished for them. All of that was really important learning for me that first day. The couple you were staying with in that house, with the living room without any windows and the like, didn't, they didn't talk much, but tell me how you found out about their story, about how they'd come to be living in such a place, in such dire poverty. Yeah, about the third or fourth Saturday morning, I had worked out by then that Jill was very shy. I think Jill was also very challenged by having a stranger living in her house. 
And one Saturday morning, I thought, we've got a chance to have a chat. I'll see what will happen if I try to have a chat with Jill. And so I asked Jill how she and Laurie had met. Jill had grown up on the south coast of New South Wales, and occasionally on school holidays, she would take a trip and spend a week or so in Sydney with her aunts. And she was on her way home to the south coast and was waiting for the train at Central Station. As she was waiting on the station, a troop train pulled in and she said it was mayhem, it was chaos. All of the men on the troop train were shouting and whistling and roaring and singing and and she worked out pretty quickly that these were demobbed. These men were going home. It was 1945. She said it was just extraordinary. The whole station was in uproar. But the men were hopping off the train and any young woman who was about was quickly swept up into the arms of a soldier and given a hug and a kiss. And so Jill found that was happening to her. And this really handsome young soldier asked for a kiss and she thought, well, I'll never see him again, why not? So she gave him a kiss and she said that led to another kiss and so on. That was how Jill and Laurie met. They met there on that station. She and Laurie then communicated by letter and after only three or four months decided that they would marry and so they met in Sydney and married. Jill was only 17. Laurie was 21 or 22, just a returned ex-serviceman and uh, he brought her back to Weabonga. They moved into this house and that's where she'd been ever since. She had never left it. She'd never been anywhere further than Tamworth. She'd never been back to the South Coast, had not seen her family again. It can't have been the kind of life she'd imagined for herself. What were the lives of women like in Weabonga in 1960? Without electricity, without running water. (laughs) It was a very difficult life. I had a great deal of admiration for the women of Weabonga. Just as you say, Richard, they had no power. There were no machines. There were nothing to actually help them. They had to do all the work in keeping a house by themselves. Every bit of work had to be done through their own labour and their own energy. And yet all of them, those five houses, were kept so well. Yes, they were falling down, and no, they did not have enough money to keep them maintained at the level that they could have been, but they were perfectly well kept from the women's point of view. The children were always at school in fresh, clean, ironed clothing. Now, just imagine iron clothing without power. You ironed clothing with an iron. See, I don't bother to iron my shirts anymore because <laughs> this is not the social expectation anymore. I just hang them on a hanger on the, on the clothesline, Peter. And, you know, it wouldn't be hard for me to iron a shirt, but even that is too much labour for me now. So this just boggles the mind for me. You see, that was part of the attitude. Um, you would not appear outside your house in Weabonga if you did not look well-kempt and well-looked after. It was part of the ethos. and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. So Peter, at this time, like I said earlier, you were seeing and starting to fall in love with Patricia. How were you keeping in touch with her all this time? 
Just before I had left to go to Weebonga, Patricia had moved to Melbourne, so we knew it was going to be fairly difficult to keep in touch. Also remember there were no smartphones. <laughs> there was a phone hanging on the wall at the post office and you used a handle on the side to ring and the woman sitting inside the post office would answer and you would ask for a number and she would patch you through to a number. Uh, to get to Melbourne by phone was long distance. Long distance was very expensive. I think it cost something like six shillings to ring for three minutes between Weabonga and Melbourne. Uh, six shillings was something like 20% of my weekly wage. <laughs> it was very hard to keep in touch. I wrote lots of letters. So you spent a fifth of your wage each week just to make a three-minute call. A three-minute phone call. So the phone call had to be pretty special. So you're a bit starved for conversation and company among the locals. But there was a mysterious couple living on the hill, an elderly brother and sister. How did you introduce yourself to them? Person Ethel lived in these three huts. I hadn't met them for about five or six weeks. But one afternoon when I was coming back from the school, Paris happened to be out at the front of the hut. So I went and introduced myself. I found Paris to be a very personable chap in his late 70s, must have been 78 or 79. Delightful fellow. Introduced himself as Paris, told me that he had a sister, Ethel, who was a little younger, and that they would be delighted if I would come in for afternoon tea. That started off one of the most significant relationships of my life. Those two saved my sanity. Why? In how, how did Bonga. they do that? How did they do that? Well, they were just delightful. The pair of them were uh, comforting, interested in me, caring for me. Uh, they were concerned that I needed to settle down and to be happy there. They looked after me. They made sure that we talked about the things that I was interested in. They were interested in reading. They had lots of time to read and they were very well read. Neither of them had been passed about first or second year in high school 70 years earlier, but they were very well read. So we enjoyed each other's company. I enjoyed being cared for by the two of them in the way that they cared for me. They really settled me down. One of the things that I observed immediately upon meeting them, and after the second or third time I'd been in their company, was I was far more available to the children. I was far more relaxed and less concerned about the difficulties in my own life. So I was far more available to the children, much more open to the children, so it was an immediate benefit to me, and that was obvious from the word go. You said Purse and Ethel were living in three huts on that property. What were those three huts like? These were three tin huts with dirt floors, no windows, no furniture apart from homemade furniture, uh, no running water, no oven or stove, just a fire upon which to cook. That was the level of poverty in that place. Had they seen much of the wider world? They had not seen anything of the wide world, Richard. They had been to Tamworth. That was as far as they'd been in their lifetime. 
They had come to Weabonga as young children. Their father had been appointed as a magistrate. There was um, a gold rush in Weabonga. There were a large number of gold mines and between 500 and 1,000 miners. There were four or five hotels, billiard parlours, all. It was quite a thriving little village and it was deserving of its own court of petty sessions. Their father had been appointed there and had taken them with him when he went in the 1880s. And he had died quite young and unexpectedly, leaving his children there. And they had spent the rest of their life. I think it's a little remembered phenomenon, but... Before the arrival of television in country Australia, books was all people had, books and the radio. That's all they had. And so you had these incredibly literate people living in the bush. Absolutely. They valued the books that they read so highly. I can remember the discussion that we had about Bleak House. Bleak House starts with a fog in London, 14 or 15 pages of description of a fog in London. It is the most extraordinary piece of descriptive writing ever. And I can remember talking to Person Ethel about that and their love of it, their delight in it. They had not experienced anything like a London fog. And yet through that reading, they were able to imagine it. It opened up their imagination to all kinds of things. So the value that they placed on literature was extraordinarily high. That was how they got out of Weabonga and how they experienced many other things. Yeah, my dad grew up in rural poverty, and I don't think he, he never forgot the sting of it, never forgot the sting of it his entire life. I, I wonder, though, the way you write about people like Person Ethel and the other people, they might have felt the sting of the poverty, but it doesn't seem like they felt the stigma of it or the shame of poverty that people sometimes feel. Was that the case? I didn't experience that with anybody except for Laurie and Jill. I think that was the problem that that Jill in particular was experienced, to have me living in the conditions in which I was living on her front veranda, she was not proud of. She felt that, felt it quite badly. But the other people had established such a dignity that in the poverty they lived good lives, decent lives, lives of purpose and lives that they expressed through their children, caring for their children. There was no shame amongst the majority of the people there, no shame at all. The other thing that was common amongst them was that there was no sense of class or class difference. They all treated each other as equals. They all treated each other with respect and dignity. There was the old Australian egalitarianism, but that often sat right next to the old Australian racism as well, and certainly racism directed towards Aboriginal people. Were there Aboriginal people present? There were two boys with Aboriginal inheritance in the classroom. I did not understand that. I did not know that until I talked with their granddad, maybe six months or seven months after I had arrived. I had become friendly with their granddad, and occasionally we had a, a bottle of warm beer between us sitting on the veranda. Nice. And on one of those occasions, we were sharing a bottle of warm beer. He told me that the boy's father, who did not live with the family, was an Aboriginal. That was shocking. To you or to, to everyone? Not necessarily to me. It was shocking to the world. It was shocking 
in the 50s and 60s that a white woman was married to a black man and they had children together. That was shocking. What insight did you have at the time as a 20-something in 1960 to Aboriginal people and the treatment of Aboriginal people? What did you see of that in Sydney? When I left my primary school, I went to high school to a Morris Brothers College in Darlinghurst. In order to get from my home to there, I caught the tram along Anzac Parade into Darlinghurst. That tram either went to La Perouse or Maroubra Beach. So I quite often saw Indigenous people, Aboriginal people, on the tram. One afternoon, catching the tram at Taylor Square, I was behind some older white people getting onto the tram, and the people in front of me suddenly stopped and backed out of the doorway and went to another. I just got onto the tram, and it was when I got into that carriage that I understood what had actually just happened the older white people had got out of that tram carriage because there were Aboriginal people sitting in it. I can still remember, Richard, the horror that I felt as an 11-year-old. The horror. For the first time in my life, I saw racism and racism in all its ignorant dreadfulness. It was an existential crisis that I had as an 11-year-old. What do you mean as an 11-year-old? I got so shocked and so frightened, I realised that I could not trust adults. I had never in my life felt that adults were not people who I could not trust. I did never realise that adults were people who could be treacherous. And so in that tram carriage that afternoon, I was so shocked. You used the word treacherous then, and I think I know what you mean. What do you think was being betrayed? Uh, Treachery, that anybody could be making such dreadful judgments about other people simply based on the colour of their skin, to me as an 11-year-old, was treachery. What had they betrayed, do you think? They were betraying humanity. They were betraying themselves as much as they were betraying the Aboriginal people who were sitting on the tram, which was all horrible, Richard, was all horrible. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. So jumping back to 1960, and there's you in Weabonga. There's a bit in the Bible, I think, I might be misquoting it, which is, man does not live on scotch finger biscuits and milk alone, <laughs> Peter. How did you get to change your diet, and, and how is it you're, you're looking like the picture of health that you are today rather than some emaciated scotch finger biscuit addict? Thank you very much, Richard, for that kindness. <laughs> um, well, I had been told by Laurie, my landlord, that on the tennis court in the middle of the village, 
Tennis was played each Sunday afternoon. Now, I had not realised that because I spent all of my weekends in the schoolroom getting ready for the next week. So I joined the tennis party and a young man whom I'd never met before turned up at the tennis and introduced himself as Paul Williamson. Paul came from a sheep grazing property about three miles, not that very far out of the village, and he told me he had come to the tennis deliberately to meet me because he wanted to recruit me for the Tamworth Rugby Union Club. And the next weekend, he called in to Laurie and Jules and picked me up on the Saturday and took me in. I signed up for the Rugby Union Club. And on the way home with Paul and his dad, George, George was well into his 70s as well. George said to me that he would like me to come and spend the Saturday night with them in their homestead on their sheep property if I would enjoy doing that, which was a lovely invitation. It was. So you you were trying not to look too keen, I suppose. Very much tried to downplay my enthusiasm for this, Uh, but I indicated that maybe that wasn't a good idea and George said, no, 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 you must come, you must spend the night with us. So I did. And at breakfast the next morning, George said that the family because there was Paul and George and one of the daughters, one of Paul's sisters there as well. And George said to me, we've got a proposition for you, Peter. And the proposition was that I come and live with them, that for the remainder of my time in Weabonga, I live in this very comfortable homestead with these gorgeous people and move away from Laurie and Jill and my tar paper veranda. That was the rescue for me. All this time, like you say, you're blowing a fair whack of your salary just for a weekly three-minute phone call to Patricia. She now had a job with Channel 7 in Melbourne. She did. And she's hanging around with this crowd of witty and urbane people. Very sophisticated. Yeah, drinking sherry, the odd martini here and there. The odd gin and tonic. The odd gin and tonic at a smart bar in Collins Street or something while you're plugging away up in the countryside. Mm, Drinking warm bottles of beer. (laughs) A million miles away. How are you going to keep her interested on the phone line and not have some some dazzling television star take her off your hands? Well, one of the things that attracted Patricia to me, fortunately, was the fact that I sang and my specialty were Johnny O'Keefe songs. Patricia liked Johnny O'Keefe songs, despite the sophistication of Melbourne. She rather enjoyed a loud Johnny O'Keefe song. So during the Saturday morning three-minute call, I would sing part of a Johnny O'Keefe song. (laughs) Bellowing it down the phone. Richard, I never did bellow. (laughs) I sang to the best of my ability. I take that back. I, take, I withdraw that accusation. <laughs> One of the songs of Johnny O'Keefe was Over the Mountain, and because I was over the mountain and Patricia was over the mountain, that was the song that I typically sang to her. And how does that go, if you don't mind me asking? Brilliantly. <laughs> I mean the song. How does it go? Can you sing oh, it now? Over the mountains, across the sea. Like that. <laughs> And, did, and, and what effect did this have on her? Was, it, was she touched? Uh, she went weak at the knees. <laughs> <laughs> was anyone listening in on this? Not that I knew of. I thought that this was a private call between myself and Patricia. It was only 
um, about 18 months later that I found that the two young ladies that she was flat sharing with were invited to listen to this every Saturday morning. <laughs> Eventually, uh, um, Patricia claims that I wore her down, that the only way that she could actually shut me up was to agree to marry me. I don't believe that to be true, Richard. I think that there was a great deal more sophistication going on than that. I think it's entirely true. It's just true in general. There's no way a woman would settle down with anything as couth and as, uh, as unruly as a man in their lives if we didn't sort of nag them into it. So it's, it's got to be nagging, I'm afraid, and wearing them down <laughs> over time. And they go, oh, God, all right. Will you, will you stop asking me if I agree? Richard, <laughs> I, I really did think that I had one Patricia's heart because I was... <laughs> No, you're telling me that that's not the case. <laughs> well, you must have something going for you. You're still together after all these years. 58 it? years later. Yeah. <laughs> so at the end of your two-year stint at Weabunga, you and Patricia were engaged. Was it nonetheless hard to take your leave of those kids at that school? We had spent a delightful two years together. The other thing that had occurred was that having two years with that same group of children, I had seen them develop. I was well aware of what they had learned and what they had mastered and what they were competent at doing. So it was not easy to leave them, although I was not reluctant to leave the country to come back to the city. We finished up the year with a concert and the children had decided that the last item in the concert was going to be the reconstruction of the Bethlehem stable. It was just wonderful. It was terrific. But a couple of the boys had decided they would bring along some newly born lambs to complete the stable setting. I wasn't that aware of what lambs do when they're on the stage and what they did was to contribute their piece as well. <laughs> which made the drama more, shall we say, piquant? Piquant, a good word, piquant, was the audience, which was about 30 people, were trying their very hardest not to burst into laughter because the children were so wonderful. <laughs> but it did tempt everybody to join in. But it was a wonderful end to the two years. So with all that, you returned to Sydney and you and Patricia got married and... You had a whole lifetime of teaching, marriage, parenthood and all those things. How long did you wait before you went back for a visit to Weabonga? I waited a long, long time. I waited far too long. I should have gone back much earlier and much quicker. Uh, but I became so involved in my life in Sydney. I had come back to Sydney not only to marry but to enrol in a university degree. But I also found that being married on a teacher's salary was uh, fairly hard going. So I took on a couple of part-time jobs as well. I ran the drive-in bottle department for the waterhouses at the Hotel Charles at Bronte. <laughs> and on Saturdays, I penciled for the waterhouse bookmaking firm on the racetrack. Do you know what a penciler is? What, like a bookie's assistant? A bookie's assistant. Then there were no computers, of course, so every bit had to be written down. Between teaching all day, going to the university three or four nights a week, running the Hotel Charles Drive-In Bottle Department and penciling at the racetrack on Saturday, I was pretty busy. And so I lost contact with my friends in Weabonga and I didn't get back to see them. Person Ethel, whom I really loved, Richard, they were so important in my life. 
I had stopped on the way out of Weabonga. They had stopped my car at the side of the road. We hugged and kissed. That was the last I saw of them. Within a matter of months of me leaving Weabonga, they were moved into aged care in Tamworth. They both deteriorated quite rapidly and I never saw them again. They died within months of being moved into aged care. That's one of the great regrets of my life that I never saw Person Ethel after that roadside hug. But I never saw the other people as well. And it wasn't until last year that my son suggested to me that I think it's time you went back to Weabonga when I had started writing the book that we're talking about decided it was time to go back to Weabonga, so I did. And what was left of the town you'd left behind? Uh, much the same. 60 years later. The old um, grey weatherboards? Still there. Falling down, but it was still there. Any, any of your former pupils still there? Uh, I met one of them. He was the only one that I knew was living in the town. He was there the day that we went back. He had been a delightful young person. And he told me that as soon as he was old enough, he had joined the army. He had not volunteered. He had joined the army and had gone off to Vietnam, had remained in the army for his entire working life. The day that I met him last year, he told me he had just turned 70. So all of these children were now old age pensioners. But did you still have that almost fatherly, teacherly concern for him? Absolutely. As a 70-year-old. Absolutely. What are you doing with your life, young man? I said to him, that was entirely the wrong thing for you to do. (laughs) (laughs) He looked askance. I said, do you realise that you had a life of imagination when you were a young person? I said, the army was not going to be the place to look after you. He said, I loved it. It was exactly the right place for me. I had a wonderful working life. Do you know your, your, your book reminds me, it's, a, it's an odd comparison, but bear with me for a second. It reminds me of the TV series Mad Men because it touches at one end the lingering effects of the Great Depression, but it reaches up to the, the 1960s and all the, the, the massive change that was about to unfold in Australia and in the rest of the world. So it, it sort of reaches across those two completely different eras and shows how they, they still had points where they, they overlapped. What do, you, what do you think about They do. That? They overlap greatly. The way that people have to live now under the COVID-19 has brought many people back to the situation that I observed there in Weabonga. We're all living in our homes, not leaving our homes, finding it necessary to find your own life and express your own life in your own interests in the way that you can without a great deal of interaction with other people. That was typical of the people of Weabonga 60 years ago. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you, Peter. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Richard. I've had such a happy time. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Maggie Dent and I'm a parenting author and educator. I raised four boys while working. 
podcast parental as anything it's full of answers to the questions that put your mental load over capacity questions like how do i get any work done from home while the kids are around when should i talk to my son and daughter about sex and consent how do i discipline the kids without having to shout all the time parental as anything it's advice without the judgment without the guilt because who needs more of that And it's got a good dose of humour in amongst it. (laughs) So, go to the ABC Listen app or your free podcast apps like Apple and Google and search for Parental as Anything with me, Maggie Dent. Maggie Dent.